The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, Randall, now 29 years old and one year sober, takes us through her unbelievable 14-year history of excessive alcohol and drug abuse. You don't want to miss this episode. Hey, Randall, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling awesome. Oh, that's great. You ready to get started? Yeah, I'm ready. Excellent. So, Randall, let's dive right in. Tell us about how your life is today your hobbies, what you do for a living. Take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. All right, oh. My daily routine for living now is I'm actually embarking on a new journey. I've just been hired on teaching English with an online company, English Town, that's based out of Sweden. It's pretty cool, actually. My mentor is based in Shanghai, so it's an interesting dynamic. Really, whenever I wake up in the morning, I try to put the consciousness to change in my mind because on my own, I don't necessarily always make the right decisions. But if I constantly have that consciousness to change fresh and in my face, I'm able to do the next right thing for my recovery. I wake up, I have my coffee, which is definitely a must. (laughs) (laughs) And then I do some type of yoga or stretching. It's actually something new that I've started doing recently is trying to have a daily routine as far as stretching, meditation, and just kind of getting grounded and set for the day. I want to have a daily routine like that. That would be just the same as like getting up and taking a shower. I want it to be that habitual. From there, my job is online, so I spend a lot of time in my house, and I've actually embarked on cooking lately. Um, really? Yeah. I'm big into the whole, like, leafy greens and raw foods and, you know, nothing processed. It's kind of a fad that's going on right now, and you know how that is. One time it's Mediterranean diet, it's Atkins, it's this, but I'm really trying to take a healthy approach on what I'm putting into my body. So a lot of time cooking, a lot of time planning recipes and checking out new um, stores and finding different foods. And it's really become quite a passion of mine, which I can tell you a year and a half ago, all I could make was scrambled eggs. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm making like raw vegan desserts and, you know, I make my own almond milk coffee creamer and yeah, so it's really great. I spend a lot of time doing that. I don't know. It's just kind of where I get my groove and my flow. Well, we have a lot in common, except that I don't cook, but I am a foodie, and I like to eat. So everything you've just been talking about, I would love to try. Yes. (laughs) Well, good. That's exciting. I love hearing people venturing out and trying new things. And of course, it's only because of recovery and a newfound way of living that we can do all these things. Otherwise, we'd just be, you know, sitting at home getting fucked up. Exactly. All right. Okay. (laughs) So, Randall, tell us how much clean time you have and when your anniversary date is. Okay, I have about a year and four months. My clean date is December 14th of 2013. Yes, you just recently celebrated a year. So, a year in December and we're, oh, it's actually, gosh, time flies. I know. What are we, oh, <laughs> we're already January, February, more. Wow, a year and three months. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's exciting. Beautiful. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the past now. How old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how they made you feel that first time? Okay. I was 15 years old when I took my first drink. I'll never forget it because the moment that I did it, it was a a little shot I took of something that a friend had. And I remember thinking, ah, this is it. You know, this is what I've been looking for. At the time, I wasn't conscious in thinking that. But now looking back, I realize that it gave me everything that I felt like I was lacking. Absolutely. Yes, I think many of us have had that same experience uh, the first time we used. And, well, that's what propelled us to move forward and continue. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, that might have been after school one day or something. And that very next weekend, I was, you know, using those master manipulation skills to find my next bottle. So that way I could drink like I saw my parents and family drink and friends drink, which my dad's an alcoholic. So that was always in excess. So as we know, here I am today, year and a half in recovery. And you know, that didn't go very well for me. I was violently ill the first time I drank, and all I wanted was more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that springboard, it's time for me to turn this show over to you, Randall. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Randall, take it away. Thanks, so. You got it. I am Randall. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I'm 29 years old. I was born in Tampa, Florida. Throughout, I don't know, I would say about the first 15 years, I lived pretty much in the country, out in the middle of nowhere. My dad was an alcoholic. I have a younger sister. She's four or five years younger than me. And my mom was kind of always the glue that held the chaos of my family together. Throughout, you know, my last 29 years, I'm 29 years old, like I said, I moved around Florida a lot. I worked my way down towards more like the big city. You know, I went through Fort Myers, Fort Lauderdale, ended up in Miami. You know, I just was making a lot of geographical fixes because I thought that being someone that was kind of out in the middle of nowhere in the boonies, everyone was better for me. I thought I had to have this persona as being like a city girl to fix whatever problems I had. So anyways, yeah, my dad's an alcoholic. I don't really touch on this a lot when I tell my story, but I do think that it does have some impact on my life. When I was growing up, all I saw were my parents having friends over, out on the back porch, up all night, drinking and partying. Anytime we would go somewhere, it was always about the drink. It was always about food. And that's kind of how we had fun. Now that I have this different mindset, I see families now that go hiking and camping and those kind of outdoorsy activities that we never did. Yep. And I realized how much I just didn't see the other side of what else there is out there besides the partying and the drinking. So I do think that kind of laid the groundwork for my family dynamic, which was very chaotic. There was always somebody in my family fighting. If it was me and my sister, if it was my mom and my dad, if it was me and my mom or my mom and my sister, it was always just this anger, this chaos, and this passion. You know, that's one thing I will say is that my parents married, or not married, but got together when they were in high school, and they had this passionate love for one another. They didn't necessarily have structure or money or like a sound household, but they loved each other. But that passion on the other side was also filled with a lot of anger because everyone was just trying to keep it together, and we couldn't. We were splitting at the seams. 
throughout my family dynamic, as long as we looked good on the outside, as long as my mom could doll us, me and my sister up, and my dad could sober up for the day, and we'd go out to family gatherings or what have you, then we were okay. So there was a lot of, I guess you would call it a closed family system, because everyone in the family kind of knew my dad's situation. He's always kind of been the troublemaker. And (laughs) yeah, so everyone knew, but we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about the fact that my dad had a problem. We didn't talk about how it was affecting his immediate family, his children, his wife, how it was affecting his family, his parents, you know, brothers. And I think that Keeping that close family system really taught me how to stuff my feelings, how to pretend like things were okay, and that there was something wrong, but I really didn't talk about it. I didn't know what it was, and so I think I internalized that towards myself. I can say that I think I've been an addict and alcoholic since the time I was very young. I always did everything in extreme. I say this often, I learned how to do a headstand when I was like four or five. And for like the next three years of family home videos, I'm on my head, you know, like everything in excess. My mom said I would sit and watch TV for like two hours in the afternoon, upside down on my head in a headstand. (laughs) Yeah, you know, my face bright red like a tomato. So I don't know, that was me, you know, everything in excess. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to picture you upside down. All red. Now, are you getting like one of those little buzzes? I must have. You know, I must have been getting a natural high there, a little freebie. So, so yeah, that was kind of the family dynamic that I had. My parents divorced when I was about 16 and my dad disappeared. You know, my mom didn't work. My dad was kind of always the breadwinner and his alcoholic, crazy way that he could be. He did love us. He did try his best. And my parents divorced and my dad ran off with another woman. And it was actually my neighbor. At the time. Yeah. And now, crazy enough to say my dad had an affair with my neighbor and now my mom is with her husband. So they switched partners. (laughs) You have got – this is fantastic. (laughs) Oh, I love it. These are the days of our lives. (laughs) Yes, it really is. is. Priceless soap opera. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's – oh, wow. Are they still together? Everyone's still together. You know, I was (laughs) – yep. My stepdad used to be my neighbor, and when I go to see my dad, he lives right next door to, like, our family home, which is just bizarre. So it's strange. Yeah, it's very strange. I go see my grandparents, and she's there, so my stepbrothers are, like, immersed in my family. You know, it's just very strange. But it is what it is, and everything worked out for the best, and... My stepdad's been an amazing person in my life. You know, he had that structure that we were lacking, that support, that sanity that a lot of us alcoholics don't have. So anyways, as I said earlier, you know, I was 15 years old when I took my first drink and things changed for me after that. I started driving and before I left the house, I already had a plan of who was going to go to the store and buy me beer or what store I knew I could go to and buy alcohol underage. And I had like a little cooler in the back seat behind my seat where my alcohol was. You know, I had to have it. My friends would always say like, why do you always have to have beer? And I'm like, you know, I like it. You know, I'm a party girl. You know, what do you mean? What's the problem? How old were you when you first started putting this little cooler back in, in the car? 16. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, I thought I was grown. (laughs) This is awesome. (laughs) 
So quickly after I started drinking, I dabbled in drugs. There was the cocaine champagne thing. You know, there was a lot of drug activity going on. Every weekend I was using and drinking. My parents would give me one night during the week where I could go out with my friends and I would go out and get as hammered as I could, pass out for an hour so I could drive home and then get up and go to school the next day, which I often didn't do. I'm a really good student when I go to class. (laughs) So at one point, my parents pulled me out of school to put me in a private school so I could stop skipping. And I had this bright red firebird. And so I'd still try to skip, but the private school was so small. There were only like six students that drove and my car's this bright red car. I'd walk out and then on the intercom, they'd be like, Randall Williams, please come to the principal's office, you know? And I'd be like, oh, I'm just putting my books in my car. I'm not trying to leave. So... (laughs) (laughs) Problem child. (laughs) Dude, how cool is it? You had a bright red firebird? I know. Dude, that's awesome. That's every guy's dream. I know, right? My dad loved it. So jealous. (laughs) You didn't have any brothers? No brothers, but I was kind of like my dad's son. Ah, there it is. There it is. Wow, I love it. It's the typical, I partied, I would change from one drug to another. I would always have the drink as my buffer. That's how I would go to places and not feel awkward. That's how I felt like I could be myself. It really served a purpose for me. The problem was, was that I was killing my body. You know, I was not sleeping. My mind was in a fog. So I wasn't able to do the things in high school that I needed to do. Somehow, you know, I passed by and did what we do, which is just keep on trucking. And now looking back, I don't see how I could have ever managed. And I did. But about the time I was 18 or 19, I got into some really heavy, heavy drug use and basically was living out of my car. You know, I would go home every like three or four weeks and try to get some money and eat some food and pack up some clothes and go back out. I don't really know what was going on with my mom at the time, but, you know, I think I had this big thing where I was like, I'm 18 now, you know, like this, I can do what I want with my life. And it got really bad. You know, I got in trouble with the police, which actually saved my life. That was where I found AA. I was on probation. I'd gotten arrested a couple times pretty close together. That was my first bottom, I would say. I had to do AA meetings as a part of the probationary terms and conditions or whatever. And then I could get the charges dropped. So I went to AA and when I walked in and I heard everyone talking, I was like, oh my God, these are my people, you know? I get it. (laughs) We're the same, but you know, I don't have a problem. I just like to party. So I loved the meetings. I loved hearing the people talk, but I just wasn't ready to surrender and admit that all these problems that I had in my life, not finishing college, getting in trouble with the police and family drama and not having a job and just one set of drama after the other. I didn't think they were directly related to my alcohol and drug use. Right. At one point, I did try to clean it up. I think the AA program did help me in that sense. I was like, okay, I'll stop all drugs, but I'm just going to drink. So I went back to college and then, you know, I was like, oh, I'm in college. It's okay to drink every single night and be hungover every single day. That's okay. Yep, of course. You know, I was managing a barbecue restaurant at the time and I was standing in the back of the kitchen and I go, man, I feel like shit today. And they're like, Randall, you feel like that every day, all the kitchen guys. And I was just floored. So I went and got a bag of some goodies and a beer out of the front and locked myself in the office and got fucked up. (laughs) Is it okay to cuss on here? Sorry. Oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You obviously didn't hear Sophie's story. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You go, girl. (laughs) So, 
yeah, I mean, the same. It's the not accepting. It's the not being ready to admit. It's the denial, not really seeing the problem. But I hated myself. I couldn't keep anything together. And everyone would say to me, Randall, you have so much potential, but you don't use it. And I'm thinking, what potential and how the hell do I use it? I couldn't see it. I didn't know what they meant. But things took an ugly turn for me when I was introduced to the whole pill mill scene in Florida that was very big at the time. And what? pill mills, you know, like the Oxycontin, the go to the doctor and ask for a script. And basically doctors and pharmacists were drug dealers uh, in Florida. Uh, uh, and that was a huge epidemic that was going on for the past, like, I don't know, five to 10 years. And it's called the pill mill. That's what the doctor's offices are called. It's a pill mill. I mean, you go in there, there's like 200 patients in the room. Everyone's trying to get in for their appointment. You pay 200 bucks. The doctor gives you a script. You walk out. This might be the tagline of your yeah, show. Yeah, that's going to be it. <laughs> I, I like it, man. The pill mill. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks like a probation office, you know? I mean, everyone's smoking cigarettes and, you know. <laughs> it looks like either an NA meeting or like the probation office, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. That's crazy. What year was this? Oh, God. I was like 23. So this was about, God, how old am I? This is like six or seven years ago. God, you're such a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so old. <laughs> you know, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking, what is this, the 70s? <laughs> I wasn't even born, oh. <laughs> yeah, so that was a big thing, you know. And instantly I was like, wow, I found that thing that I loved. Because I'd always kind of dabbled in painkillers. And that was one thing that I guess in my addict I held close to my heart and it was what I needed and it was what took me to my knees and it's what took me over the edge very quickly. Within six months, I was using to be a more productive waitress at work and within a couple of months, I couldn't go to work unless I had the pills. Right. It was that physical habit and I remember thinking, damn, you know, I don't want to be a drug addict again because, you know, I'd stopped drugging but I was just drinking, right? So I thought I was like pulling, you know, I reeled it in a little bit. And so I tried to quit and I couldn't. I just was like, all right, I'm just going to sleep this off for a week and I'll be fine. And it was just this emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, I don't even know how to explain it. It really was just killing me on the inside, spiritually and physically. I couldn't function without it. So I just kept on going and trying to find the cheapest, most effective means. And I was like... As long as I'm going to school and as long as I'm working, I can do this. As long as I can keep it together. Well, that didn't last for very long. And quickly I started injecting using needles, which is the one thing I always said I would never do. And that brought me to my knees quickly. I lost my job. I lost promotions. I stopped going to school. I lost my apartment. I lost everything. You know, I'm in debt up to my ears right now with school loans and credit card bills and bad checks. And I finally moved into the house with my mom. And she was like, I think you have a problem. And I was, nah, you know, you're crazy. I'm fine. I got this. You know, I'm good. The denial. The denial. And I also didn't want to admit I was just so ashamed. And I remember all the things I put my mom through through when I was in high school and I was really awful and I really had reeled it in for a couple of years and she was finally happy again and I just didn't want to break my mom's heart again you know and that's what it felt like to me admitting my problem but I think 
that I had a backwards there. I know I did that. My mom just wanted me to be healthy and happy. So finally I admitted it. I said I wanted help and you know, I tried the methadone clinics and you know, I tried to do it on my own and I realized I couldn't do that and that I couldn't stop and I needed to be locked up somewhere. So I went to rehab for the first time in November, 2012. I was in rehab for 30 days. And from November 2012 till December 14th, 2013, I was in four rehabs, uh, numerous halfway houses and detox centers and out and in and out and in. I was all over, you know, Florida trying to find a rehab that would take me that I could afford. I was trying to get clean, but I didn't know how to do it. I just don't think I had the capacity at that time to see that this was life or death, you know, that this wasn't something that I could manipulate to make work for me, that I had to give myself wholly to the program and to the fact that I was an addict and an alcoholic. And I couldn't conceptualize that. And then at one point, I remember saying, I've got to do this. You know, I don't want to keep living like this. You know, I didn't have any money and I had this terrible habit and that just doesn't go together. At one point, I did say, you know, if I have all the money in the world, maybe I could just keep using. But the way my life is today, (laughs) that's not the case. You know, I'm in such a better place. I think we've all been there, all right? That whole, if I just had enough money, I could keep this run going forever. Mm -hmm. Just sick. I know. It is. So that's kind of it. I really wanted it. I couldn't get it. I really wanted it, but I didn't know how to get it or I wasn't there yet. It took me like four relapses to really see myself and to see my addiction. The first time I went to rehab, I thought I just needed to kick this pill habit. I was like, I'm definitely still drinking. You know, I never even considered (laughs) being clean, you know, of all moondermite altering, you know, substances. Never. I just needed to get rid of this thing. As you just did in the beginning of this show, Omar, you asked me when's the first time you used. So did my counselor at that rehab. She said, all right, I'm going to ask you a list of drugs to see how old you are when you first used them, how long you used them for, and how long your abstinence has been. Well, every drug on the list I used, and they were all from the age of 15 to 17 in abstinence, I didn't even know what that meant. Like one or two days. And here I am like 25 years old in rehab and I've never had a day of abstinence. I mean, you know. Wow. It's a rude awakening, huh? It's a rude awakening. And I remember sitting on the phone that night calling my mom going, holy shit, I'm an addict. (laughs) Like it was this big shock. (laughs) Your mom's like, oh my God, (laughs) really? You know? So, yeah, it took me that process and it was hard to admit that. It was hard to come to terms with that. But once I did, it's some sort of freedom that I experienced, the surrender. And now my life is completely different. Real quick, before we segue, you were in and out of four different rehabs in that course of of a year, right? Two years. So, yeah, within close to two years, in and out of rehabs four times. All right. And you said you were doing intravenous drugs. What were you... Were you on heroin? Was it Oxycontins? What was it that you were doing? Any opiate. Heroin, Dilaudid, Oxycontin. It didn't matter. Right. You were looking to detach from the earth, you know, for X amount of time. Yeah. Basically. I mean, I wanted to be completely numb. I didn't want to feel anything, you know. I, I mean, towards the end, I started to use some crack and do the whole speedball thing. But really, opiates, they were my thing. That was the line I crossed, and that was it for me. You know, it was the opiates. That's the high I wanted. Nothing else mattered at that point. I mean, I would fight with my family and beg them to give me money just because I was sick. My mom would do it. At the time, I was dating a guy that had a small son that we were in custody of 50% of the time. And... I would fight in front of Dylan, which is his son, because I wanted money, because what he gave me wasn't good enough. I 
would round up all this money and fight with everyone and just run rampant to get the drugs and I would get them and it would never be enough. So I would start the process all over again of how I can manipulate, how I can make people feel bad. How can I steal from my mom? All my credit cards when I came to rehab were like cut up on the sides because my mom had to put a lock on her door because I would steal from her and I would be picking the lock with my credit cards, popping the door open and be stealing money out of their room. I mean, that's definitely the wreckage. That was my rock bottom. Wow. That is very, very heavy. Yeah. So, I mean, moving forward, I came to rehab in Costa Rica in June two years ago. So what year is that? 2013. I think so. Yeah. That sounds about right. We're in 2015 right now. You've got a year, a little over a year. Yeah. Close to two years. Yeah. So it's two years ago in June, which was 2013. I came to okay. Costa Rica. Um, I found this rehab here, Costa Rica Recovery, because I knew it was the only one that was cheap enough and had 90 days. And, you know, hey, I'm going to Costa Rica. Sounds great for me. Really, when I got here, I found a very strict program, but that also allowed me to not just be locked up in some place for 30 days and then peek out into the world sober and clean and freak out. So it really was the program that worked for me, the rehab and the meetings. You know, I was required to get a sponsor. I was required to go to meetings every single day. And that's what the program suggests. And I thought I could get sober and clean and not work the steps or get a sponsor because that was just too damn scary. I don't want to have to ask someone to be my sponsor. That's just awkward. That's the way my mind tells it to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. I got hung up on my fourth step. You know, a lot of people say that fourth step's scary and that people have relapsed. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think that somewhere along the way, I just, I lost that consciousness to change. That's something that I'm really big on right now, which is that it's a daily maintenance that I have to do to keep my sobriety. You know, that's what I have to focus on every single day. Yeah, I need a job. Yeah, I got to pay bills. Yeah, I need food in the fridge. And I have to do all these responsible things like actually clean my apartment and take a shower. (laughs) But, you know, meetings, sponsor, those are the things that I have to do to keep my sobriety and to keep this clean time that I've finally been able to put together. So back to the rehab, I was there for 90 days, moved to the halfway house after for three months, relapsed two weeks prior to picking up six months. I went out for three days and it was over the weekend and Monday rolls along and I'm like, okay, I can start calling my family to manipulate to get money so that way I can go try to cop more drugs or I can go back to rehab and So I told the rehab what had happened and I went straight back for another 45 days and moved back to the halfway house uh, for about a month or two, got a job, got my own place, which I have now. And I've lived here for about, I don't know, a little over a year. And, you know, I pay my rent every month on time. I have cable, electricity, internet, water, (laughs) (laughs) and nothing ever has been shut off. (laughs) So my place is clean right now. I have groceries in the fridge. It's a completely different lifestyle than what I had because I can tell you I would have spent my money on drugs or alcohol before I would have bought food for my fridge or paid my cable bill. Really, the main thing I needed was electricity and water. Rent, eh, that didn't even matter because it might take them a while for them to kick me out. (laughs) 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 So now... My life has completely changed. There were things that I aspired to when I got sober. And, I, you know, I thought when I got sober that life was just going to be grand and great. And it's not necessarily it. It's life on life's terms. But I can say that I love who I am today. And 
I've gotten to know myself on such a deeper level. When I first came into rehab, my physical appearance changed. I got actual color to my skin. I wasn't all gray. You know, I wasn't all bloated after a short period of time. I started working out. I started eating healthier, which is a major, major point of my regimen today is, you know, exercise, eating right, you know, because I have so many things. I'm anxious one day, depressed the next. I really have to take care of my body because that's what takes care of my mental state. I remember when you came back from that relapse, and I can't remember. It was just a few days. You went back out for a few days, right? Mm-hmm. All right. I didn't know if it was just drinking or if it was drug use. or I, I don't know what you found down here. Well, you can find almost anything in Costa Rica. Oh, don't worry. It's- I found a pill mill down here, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's funny is I was engaged at the time, uh, so I just started dating my wife now today. You know my wife, Marcella. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's one of your bigger fans. And she's always asked me about you because one of the first meetings I took her to, you were there. It was a Saturday morning meeting. You just come back from the relapse. And I remember she was sitting in the room and she goes, would you say those two sitting in the back, are those newcomers? (laughs) And (laughs) And I go... I think she just came back. I think they just both came back from relapses, mm-hmm. honey. And she was like, yeah. And then six months later, she was with me at a, a meeting and she goes, is that the same girl from before? <laughs> and I said, yeah, she's doing fantastic. She goes, she looks like a different person. She looks fantastic. She goes, well, I'm rooting for her. Aww. you know. So, <laughs> so she's always asked me about you. She's like, oh, say hi to Randall for me because I told her we were doing this interview. So she says hello. Oh, tell her I said hi. Yeah, it's so sweet to know that people are supporting me, you know, and that I touched her in a way where, by showing, you know, how this program works and how much it means to me to not really know her that well, but to know that she's rooting for me, you know, and and that's what this program's about. It's about the fellowship and it's about the support and the love and the understanding that we can get from one another, which was what I always thought drinking would bring me, you know. So it, it really does mean a lot to me and thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And it wasn't easy. You've been sober now almost a year, well, almost a year and a half. But tell us about Those first six months after your relapse must have been tough. I don't know. You tell us. Was those first six months after the relapse, was it tougher or was it easier because you finally surrendered? I'm going to say that the first six months after that were pretty easy. They weren't easy. But yeah, I had finally surrendered. I had finally came to believe in a higher power and that the higher power is actually what's going to keep me sober and clean and something that's going to keep me connected and grounded. I had always said that I have a, you know, I have a blank slate when it comes to a higher power, but I just hadn't ever felt that connection. And when I relapsed, it came to me, you know, that was kind of my spiritual awakening. And when I was in rehab for those 45 days, I made the best use of my time. I called my sponsor every single day. I was on my fourth step again, and I was working on it two hours every night, maybe not every night, but as many nights a week as I could, you know, I would gather up some people and say, let's go, you know, into the study room and work on our steps and just to kind of have that. I need people today. You know, it's crazy. I need people. I used to hate those needy people, those needy bitches, but I'm one of them. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know, and I got my fourth step done. I got my fifth step done. And I don't know if there was like these like, oh, shining lights, but it gave me the ability to see myself in such a different way and to let go some things that were really holding me back 
And I would be, you know, doing something just on the daily basis, the things that I had to do, you know, washing dishes, this and that, you know, going to meetings. And I would see these behaviors pop up and I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Let me take a look at it and see what I can do to correct it and be willing and ready to have God work on removing these defects of character from me. And it's not easy. And are they removed? Some of them are. Honestly, I was the biggest flirt in rehab and I was almost kicked out a couple times because I just couldn't stop flirting because I didn't know how to have a mature adult conversation with someone. And I got my valid, you know, I was validated through men. Yes, yes. And there was a woman in the meeting that shares often about having dignity, you know, and I was write it on my hand every day, dignity. And that to me meant when I was in class and rehab or if I was at a meeting because rehab made me go, I wasn't just like slouching with my head on the table. You know, I sat there and acted like I really wanted to be there, even though maybe at the time I was like, oh, I can't stand this. And I stopped flirting. And I'll tell you, the way I used to talk, I mean, I was like a sailor, you know, and when I would tell people, you know, no, I don't want to talk like that anymore. At first, it was really hard because they wouldn't accept it. They'd be like, ah, yeah, you know, Randall. But eventually I made the change. And now, you know, I don't even know if I know how to flirt anymore because it was such a coping mechanism. Now I get all like nervous. I'm like, uh, I'm like the complete opposite, you know, I'm the extremist. So it really did change my perspective and it gave me self-esteem. You know, it gave me self-confidence to know that I don't have to dumb myself down for people to like me which is, absolutely yeah, it's been a huge change for me. So yeah, I went to meetings every day. I got a job, a very low, low stress job. I showed up every day from eight to three. I showed up, I went to work, I came home, I went to meetings. For the first six months, things got easy, but I can tell you for the first six months, I felt so awkward all the time. I don't know. I just felt weird. At about six months, that was lifted, thank God. I don't even know how to describe it in words, except for I just felt weird. Maybe it was anxiety, you know, maybe it was a number of things. But at six months, that was lifted. And from six to nine months, going to meetings, talking to my sponsor, working the steps, trying to be honest or being honest, uh, being open-minded, being willing came very easy to me. Not very easy, but it was becoming second nature, so it wasn't so tough. It wasn't like I was grinding to get there. It was like, all right, I want to do this. Right. Um, at about nine months, things changed for me. I have a tendency to get this, I've got this attitude because I think I know everything and I think I know best. <laughs> and I really went into a, a slump. I kind of moved away from the meetings. I wasn't going to as many. I was missing right. meetings more often. I was in a new job that had me traveling all over Costa Rica. So, you know, I was with coworkers that were drinking. I was, you know, being out late and really wasn't good for my spiritual connection and for my spirituality. And I couldn't really see that because I needed this job so that way I could be somebody. And I picked up my year, told my story for the first time ever, and I was a mess. I was a complete mess, you know, so it hasn't been easy. I don't really ever do things exactly the way I'm supposed to, but I do it to the best of my ability. And when I'm not, I know that as long as I don't pick up, I can get back on that beam. Absolutely. Yeah. So I got fired. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That'll get me right sized. I got fired. It does. (laughs) (laughs) I got fired. Why'd they fire you? Well, I had been suffering with these like depressive states, which Mm -hmm. may be related to my recovery, you know, those ups and downs, but mine were pretty intense. I would like not be able to get out of bed for a week. And Mm -hmm. I was in this new job where I was working from home and just being at my house. I don't know. I didn't have the skills that I needed to 
I don't know. You know, I just let things slip. I couldn't keep it together. I was bumbling along, trying to do my best, and I wasn't asking for help. I wasn't telling people, you know, I'm swarm, I'm drowning in this job right now. I need help. I can't keep it together. I was trying so hard to keep it together and put that picture on outside of me, you know, that facade that says, I'm okay. I got this. I'll figure it out. And I got fired. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. You know, it really was. And that's where I've really found my spirituality. You know, I was saying when I went to rehab physically, I changed through the steps and, you know, through the daily maintenance, mentally and emotionally, I leveled off some. And now my spirituality has just skyrocketed. I think I'm in that phase where spiritually being open to the universe, whatever energies are out there, whatever is supposed to happen will happen and is meant to happen. And I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that's something that's really big for me lately. I go to like eight or nine meetings a week now. What? Yeah. Wow. That is impressive. Yeah. I chair a meeting. I'm sponsoring people. I had three sponsees a couple of weeks ago. They've all moved on. So now I'm down to one, but I'm really, really, I, I love being a sponsor. It's when I really feel on the beam. I really hope I'm helping these girls, but I love being a sponsor and I love giving back. I wish I had the words to give to the girls and the, the feelings that I feel now having some time put together. If I could bottle it up and hand it to them, I would, but I can't. So all I can do is share my story with them as I am with you now. And I love it. You know, I love being a sponsor. Now that I'm going to meetings every day, I know that that day I'm going to have a better day. Like I said, I'm struggling with this depression. So I really struggle with being withdrawn, fatigued, low productivity levels. And now since I'm going to meetings every day and I'm repeating myself, I know that I'm going to have an overall more productive day. I'm going to have more serenity. And I have recently defined the meetings as my higher power. So every time I walk in that room, I get connected with my higher power again. And it's just a really awesome feeling. And I would love to have, you know, tons of riches and everything in the world, but I don't need any of that now. All I need is a connection with my higher power, love myself. I love being on this journey of discovering who I am, what I like, which now I'm cooking, which is bizarre. I want to try some dancing, some traveling. You know, there's so many things that I could do. Now I'm teaching English with people from all over the world. As I said in the beginning of my story, I wanted to get out of that little country town in Tampa, Florida. And now look at me. I'm in Costa Rica. I'm sober and I'm communicating with all different cultures. And it's really just been a great life. I think that's it, guys. <laughs> and say, and that's my story. And that's my story. <laughs> That was awesome. I knew it was going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Randall, thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. Thank you. That was an am- oh, no, thank you. It was an amazing story and absolutely inspirational for all of our newcomers. The thing that I noticed the most when doing these podcasts lately is that when you're under five years clean, your level of awareness and your passion is heightened. Mm. I think that that newcomer pink cloud, it really comes through your voice. Yeah. You know, you can feel it. And the ones that have, as far as the podcasts that have gotten, it's amazing. It's the women's podcasts that have gotten a lot of downloads and a lot of followers. Leanne's story, Sophie's story, Raquel's story. And they're all under, Raquel just celebrated five years. But the other girls, Leanne with two and Sophie with two, stories and yours super powerful because i think you're using time it's so very clear and present in your life today mm-hmm. i mean i'm sure you can as you tell your story it's all very very clear me i'm coming up on 12 years and i was doing a recording with my wife as far as trying to do my story i couldn't get into it mm. it was tough i was trying to go back in time 12 years and reconnect with that person 
And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that person's dead. Mm. So, again, your story, absolutely awesome. I enjoyed Oh, thank you. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so nervous, honestly. Oh, my God. Yeah, but you got to feel fantastic right now. Oh, I f- I'm feeling great. I'm on top of the world, buddy. Oh, I love it. All right. So, Randall, let's keep this spirit moving. All right. I'm going to ask you a few questions now, and I call these for the newcomer. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and you're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Ready. Excellent. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Okay. I think that was, you know, I don't really want to give a generic answer, which is, you know, admitting the problem, but that's what I think it was, that I couldn't grasp the idea that I was an addict. It was the acceptance, and it was very hard. It was hard to look back on my life and see where I'd come from. You know, there were a lot of distractions. The level of commitment from me was low in the beginning, but it was all I was capable of. I know now as time goes on in my early recovery and now I'm able to build on the blocks and on the foundation. So I really think it was, you know, basically it was just that acceptance. It was not manipulating and it was giving myself fully to the program that I was lacking in. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. And number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? The first time that I developed the hope I could recover. When I relapsed this last time, I had completely hit my last rock bottom that I was capable of, and I wasn't sure if this program was for me. I said to myself, maybe I'm that you know one person that this program isn't going to help. And so I just prayed and I just prayed because I didn't know what else to do and I didn't want to keep going on the way I was, but I didn't know how to get out of it. So I immersed myself in the program. I quickly got back to my fourth step and I did my fourth step and it showed me that the baggage I was carrying around for so long, I didn't have to hold on to anymore. I could let it go and that I was going to be capable of changing the behaviors, which ultimately lead me to use. And that was my spiritual awakening. I think I had a lot of them, a lot of small things, just when being stressed out about something and then sharing about it in a meeting and then feeling instantly better. To me, that's a spiritual awakening. You know, that's showing that the program works in my life. But the big one for me, that big turning point was after my last relapse and after doing my four step. And that's what gave me the hope to change and to know that it was possible. Beautiful. Thank you. And number three, do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? No. <laughs> <laughs> the big book. No, wait. I got to think about that one. No, hey, I got I, some books. I mean, I read The Living Sober. I read The 12, It doesn't have to be. 12. I don't have like looking through a new pair of glasses or something cool, but just the basics. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, hold on one second. All right. All right. Do you find something? Oh, no. I'm sorry. I burnt my beans. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Practicing cooking. (laughs) Okay. You said the – did you read the Living Sober book? I read the Living Sober book. I read the 12 and 12, which if you work AA, I recommend, I guess, because trying to figure it out in the big book is a little confusing. I think the big book is good knowledge to have, but I think it takes a little time to acquire the understanding on that. Perfect. That's a great answer. All right. And you burned your beans. And I burned my beans. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I've been smelling them for a little while now, but I was on a roll. I was like, fuck it, I'll make more. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking awesome. Fucking awesome, man. Love it. All right. Number four. What is the best suggestion you have ever received? The best suggestion I've ever received, as I talked about earlier, you know, I was going through a hard time. I had kind of stopped going to meetings and I honestly was hating meetings. I couldn't even stand to sit there for an hour. And I told my sponsor that and she said, go to more meetings. And it changed my (laughs) life. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one where that's like, so, uh, you know, um, when can I stop going to meetings? Yeah. Okay. As soon as you don't want to stop going to meetings is when you can stop going to meetings. Exactly. Yeah, something like, I can't even remember. As soon as but you I, like, wait, yeah, I don't know. As soon as you like going to meetings, you can stop going to meetings. Or as soon as you want to go to a meeting, you can stop going to a meeting. Yeah, I remember something like that. Yeah. But yeah, that suggestion was like, God, I'm fucking tired of going to meetings. All right, well, you need to make more meetings then. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Thank you very much. Great suggestion. Okay, number five. If you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? Don't stop before the miracle happens. I love that one. That one gets a lot of airplay. Yeah, I mean, it's so cheesy. I'm sorry, but it's true because every time I've gone through something really bad, I've popped out the other side on such a different plane of like happiness and spiritual connection and Every time I go through something really hard, whatever's on the other side is way better than where I started. Yep, absolutely. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle. Yep. Great suggestions, Randall. And before we say goodbye, I have one more question for you. Of all the meetings you have attended anywhere in the world, which group is your favorite and where is that group located? Of all the meetings I've attended anywhere in the world, I would say that it's right here in Costa Rica in Escazú. It's the zoo group. Perfect. It's one of my favorites as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we have reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say in Costa Rica, pura vida. Pura vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then.